Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. Welcome to the new episode of the Pharma Launch Secrets podcast. I have a pleasure today to be joined by Dale Cook. Dale is the president of Philly Cook Consulting, and he helps prescription product marketeers use 21st century technology to communicate about their products while remaining compliant with FDA regulations written in the 1960s. Dale also lectures on drug promotion and law at Temple University of Pharmacy. Welcome, Dale. Thank you for having me, Bazdar. All right. I'm really excited about today's episode because I spent years working on the commercial side of pharma, launching products, country, regional, global level. And I always had this a little bit of nervousness and stress about whether I will do everything I do <laughs> compliantly and in the right way, right? So that my creative side can shine, but I also I don't break any rules and laws. So I'm particularly excited about chatting today. And let's start, first of all, it was interesting how you talk about regulations that were written in the, in the 60s and then talk about 21st century needs. So what's your mission really at Philcook Consulting? Let's start with that. Yeah. So industry as a whole, and this is a, a challenge across the board for all regulations, but it's particularly challenging in pharma, the world of pharmaceuticals. Regulations and law must lag behind the developments of technology. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is we don't want uh, the FDA or Congress constantly changing the rules on us. We don't want them every week providing a new update on what the latest you know, regulations should be, right? That would put an enormous burden on any regulated industry to constantly be trying to keep up with these developments, right? So by definition, there's always going to be some lag, right? And we don't want FDA to be too preemptive. We don't want them to come out with a policy based on the state of the internet in 1992 when they held their first hearings on the internet. And then suddenly we're bound by the state of the internet in 1992 and we're 20 years later. And, you know, that would be a really horrible thing. So, there's always going to be this lag. And the challenge for industry, as you talked about, you need to make sure you're compliant with the regs. So the regs, when they were written, and this all really dates to the Falver-Harris amendments from the mid-1960s, and then the regs were developed based upon those changes to the law, that took several years. But when that was being done, you know, literally the internet didn't exist. You know, ARPANET might have been created. I'm not really sure. But, you know, certainly the consumer worldwide web was decades away. And so those regulations, we've had that stable regulatory environment for going on 60 years now. That has provided great things for industry by being stable. But it also has provided the challenge that you described. We have to be compliant with those regs, even though the way in which we communicate, the things about which we are communicating, the media that we're using, were literally not envisioned by the people who developed those regs. Yeah. So I have to ask you this. When one of the things that a lot of people think about 
when we think about advertising and promotion and compliance and regulations, they think of another headline that's popping up next month that from Office Inspector General and there was multi-million dollar fine on something. And you know, and why am I saying that? Because oftentimes you enter meetings, a pharma meeting is like, oh, like there, there's almost like uh, you can feel viscerally that there is fear of, the, of those situations and everyone's trying to do the best they can. So how come those big headlines are still happening? And in your view, what are the main reasons that such things would still happen even in 2023? Yeah, I mean, the, there's a tremendous interest by the federal government in ensuring that its uh, spend in healthcare, which is the single largest purchaser of of all healthcare services in the world is the United States federal government. They spend more money on this than anybody else. It's not even close to who's second. Uh, and they want to make sure, obviously, that that money is being spent appropriately. And so there is a very active effort at OIG within you know, HHS to go after what is perceived to be fraudulent behavior. And because the dollar figures that we're talking about, as you said, you know, we, the, the settlements can explode very, very rapidly. So nine and 10 figure settlements are unfortunately not uncommon. It is the case that we're dealing with a lot of money. So companies that are earning billions of dollars are, if they did something inappropriate, potentially liable for hundreds of millions or in some cases even billions of dollars. Why is it still happening? Well, it's still happening in part because some people are bad actors. Some people in industry are willing to break the rules and believe that it's a cost of doing business. My experience has been that that's a very minority view. It's not non-existent. There are such people, but it's very few people who are in that role where they're saying we know what we're doing is is wrong or at least is you know potentially a violation we're willing to go ahead and take the chance because it's worth so much money that we won't have to you know give it back that again is a very small percentage uh, a bigger percentage from my experience has been they're trying to do their best but in the implementation with lots of people all over the world working together on these projects, uh, something slips through the cracks and it slips through the cracks and then all of a sudden it becomes the basis. And so people then start modifying off of that thing that should never have been done. And, you know, you know the pressure, right? You, got, you approved this last week, you approved this last month, why are you now telling me I can't do this? Well, that's how then it becomes the basis for the second iteration and then the third iteration. And suddenly the, that minor thing that slipped through the cracks has become a much bigger thing that has turned into the basis for FDA enforcement or an OIG investigation. And that's when, you know, unfortunately, we wind up in those situations. Yeah, there's always this moment where something that was not supposed to be done is done, but then a lot of decisions afterwards are done and consistently with that previous decision, it starts to kind of snowball. Yeah, absolutely. And having reviewed materials, I can tell you that that moment for reviewers where, you know, it's 3 a.m. and you sit bolt upright in bed and you suddenly have this, oh my God, that sentence that I have been approving for the past three months could have been read 
in this completely other way that I never thought of and that I didn't intend it to be understood. And that way of reading it is potentially violative. And now it's like, oh, what do I do? Right. Because I'm going to have to go into that meeting that morning, you know, after a, a restless night and start explaining how we need to pull back materials or we need to depending on the nature of, you know, that, that incident, you know, having, you know, maybe we're going to be okay with just letting those materials expire and, you know, getting new materials into the marketplace, but that type of thing happens, right? And it's a, it's an ugly situation. Nobody wants it. And you, you want people who have had that experience a few times so that they know how to avoid it moving forward. Got got and yeah, the 3 a.m. moment. Uh, and then when it comes to, let's talk about that in, in the context of launches. So just, you know, so to understand high level, we had launches before COVID, then COVID came, and then the main commercial channel for pharma companies, which is sales reps, they couldn't see, doc- they couldn't visit doctors anymore. So they switched to kind of video communication like this. There were a lot of webinars, a lot of emails. It was like a scramble and shock phase. And then things have settled now, and there is this new normal. And so... In terms of what is that new normal when it comes to product launches and anything that's done on a regulatory and advertising side, what are the top things that you see from, from your end? Yeah, so I mean, in January and February of 2020, most pharmaceutical companies were saying, oh, we could never move to a completely remote, completely online experience. That's simply impossible. There's no way we could do that. And then in March 2020, within about 72 hours, they all did it. And so that, you know, absolutely revolutionary experience of people just realizing that they had no other choice and trying to figure it out we have seen massive developments uh the way in which you know the interactions with healthcare professionals were going we have not fully i you said it's settled now and i do feel that there's a it's a much it's not nearly as in flux as it was certainly not like you know march of 2020 but i think we're still figuring out what the new normal is i think you know from fda for example we are seeing that uh, they are taking a very thoughtful approach and they're not simply rescinding all of the policy and guidances that were put in place in those emergency settings, but and simply assuming that the way things were done in January of 2020 is the way we should go back to. Some of the things that they changed, they're keeping in place. Not all of them. Right. Some of them are being repealed and pulled back. You know, in person inspections are again up and running. So we're seeing some of that stuff happen. Uh, One of the big areas for us is, of course, with regard to sample delivery, you know, sales reps making those samples, uh, which has always been a key touch point for the sales reps to get into physicians' offices and have that at least 15-second moment with the physician to, you know, remind them who they are and, you know, can you please sign. And FDA's policy is still out there permitting direct ship of uh, samples. So, you know, some companies are still trying to follow that guidance and keep it out there. But, you know, these are, this is the new interactions and a lot of that stuff Physicians have learned that they liked it. They liked being able to schedule their time online with their sales reps. And so they don't want pharmaceutical companies to go back completely to the way things were in January 2020. But they also realize that, you know, 
their offices are open again. You know, maybe they're still following masking procedures in certain circumstances, but they're not going to they're not going to operate forever the way we did during that, you know, really intense period. Yeah. So we've seen also as a company, definitely an acceleration of omnichannel, uh, digital activities, and a lot of companies reduced the size of their field force. And that, you know, what you mentioned, the 30 seconds or 60 seconds, like seeing a doctor is, you know, the cost of that is about $200 in the, in the U.S. And it's often your reminder and, you know, uh, signing something. And so a lot of companies exploring all kinds of different channels. I think omnichannel is a big word in other industries as well. The big question is, if I am now tasked to launch a product and I'm a commercial uh, lead and I have a team of also other commercial folks, and I have all these creative ideas together with agencies um, to channels that I want to use, creating material I want to, to have, whether it's paid or organic or videos or text or PDF. So how do I even think about this process so that my creativity and my team's creativity shines without breaking the rules? Is it that marketeers need to be better educated on all the do's and don'ts and that training is not sufficient or their agency training is not sufficient because often agency would submit MLR material. And I know you worked also at Digitas in the past, you know that world very, world very well. Is it that we need a better technology so that when we submit something, you know, seeing chat GPT and everything is like, how? why not have a software that just say, this is out, this is in, this is out, this is in, as opposed to having someone at 3 a.m doing that. So just train the model. I know there are some technologies. So what what are the areas where if we do really well, like a few things we do well, we're going to have both creativity and a lot of content, a lot of creativity being out there without breaking the rules. I know it's a big and loaded question, but like, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like the massive things that we could do better. Sure. So, I mean, I guess I would start, I refer to this frequently as being the haiku of pharma marketing. And the idea is like haiku as an art form has a very strict set of rules that you have to uh, follow. You, you know, have to have a certain syllable count. You have to present the haiku in a certain way. It has to be themed appropriately. No one would say that haiku does not involve creativity right? It's an immense amount of creativity that goes into it, but you have to follow the rules. And so the same thing occurs here. First of all, you have to know the rules. You know, I do a lot of training. I have an on-demand training platform at phillycook.thinkific.com, you know, so there's absolutely a need and, you know, agencies as well as pharmaceutical companies come to me to learn the rules, to make sure that everybody is going into it with that, you know, base set of knowledge. But then also, you know, learning how to, within the rules, be creative, learning how to uh, come up with new ideas. And then with regard to that review and approval process to get things through, uh, there have been attempts with AI. I'm uh, really excited to learn more about what's under underway there or the potential of AI to do some of the review and approval. I'm skeptical at the moment because what I have seen has not yet really impressed me. It has been a, a little bit too rote. One of the things that I've seen work successfully is not just getting the rules out, but 
developing creative templates. Uh, and so, you know, figuring out what the key points that need to be made are and spending time up front with, you know, these are the two or three key sentences that absolutely positively have to be presented. And here's the manner in which they have to be presented. And then we're going to build out from that core. So now we're getting higher quality assets coming into the review process, which means fewer changes during the review process, higher quality assets going out, right? It's always much easier to create better material at first than it is to fix it uh, down the line. So that's, you know, that's the, the thing that I would say for all of the agencies and, you know, for all of the marketers out there, better quality content in means better quality content out. Got it. That's, that's great. And then when it comes to FDA regulations and on this promotion, on these promotional channels, where do you see the trends in terms of what changing many years ago with social media? So there were a lot of rules around paid search. And I actually read, read your book on uh, promotional materials and FDA review. And so where do you see right now in this new normal changes coming? What's more possible that wasn't possible in the past? What's less possible because, you know, a few bad actors did something and now it's more strict when it comes to channels used to promote something? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the social media guidances that we have from the agency date back to 2014. Those guidances are in draft, and that's just a technical status for, for the agency. That means, you know, they're the initial ones that have been provided. The internet, even from 2014, has changed quite a lot. We have not yet gotten the 2023 uh, guidance agenda from the agency to see whether there's any ad promo guidances uh, on the agenda, at least I should say it's Friday. I checked on Tuesday and I didn't see it. So perhaps it came out in the past two days and I missed it. You know, as we're speaking, this might be an area where ad, ad promo comes up with some new guidances. It certainly would be nice to see an update to those things. You know, just to point out a trivial issue, you know, Back when that guidance was released, Twitter had a 140 character count limit and the agency very consciously drafted its guidance to fit within 140 characters. That no longer is true. It's now 280 characters. It's a trivial change in one standpoint, but from the standpoint of, you know, making sure that you're compliant, it's a big one, right? And so... I don't know whether we're going to get new guidances. The overall enforcement from the agency in the ad promo world has been uh, greatly reduced. There have been enforcement actions. If you look at the few that we had from last year, primarily about newer channels, social media, satellite media tours, you know, these are the types of things where, you know, people are finding themselves receiving FDA violations. Also, from the standpoint of, you know, we've had a massive one with regard to a product that was uh, under investigation for COVID. The company has since experienced uh, additional challenges that were perhaps unrelated to, you know, the, the ad promo issues. But I don't think we're going to see a return to the old environment where we were getting 100 enforcement actions per year. I just don't think that's going to happen. In part, I don't think that's going to happen because industry is just doing a much better job. Industry does know the core rules for the most part. You know, back then, 
it was frequently the case that what I do for a living ad promo was not always the specialty of the person who was doing the reviews. That's no longer true, right? Pharmaceutical companies now understand the importance of this stuff and they hire people who focus on it. And again, I do a lot of time, spend a lot of time training uh, those people and working with them. So where will the agency move? I don't know. I mean, one of the biggest challenges I think for all of us is with regard to misinformation and addressing misinformation. And the agency's guidance on that specific topic from back in 2014, I think is really showing signs of age. It's, it was a challenge back then. It is a much, much bigger challenge today. I don't know if you saw, but as we're recording this, it was only a few weeks ago that uh, Commissioner Califf said that he thinks that misinformation is uh, the leading cause of death in the United States. So that's something that all of us need to address, and we need to sort of think through how we're going to do that. And I think that FDA, all of government, really wants industry to be a partner there and really wants FDA industry to help you know, get good information. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're doing this, right, if you're a marketer who is dedicated to marketing prescription products. So you're not marketing Coca-Cola, you're not marketing Toyota, you know, you're in this arena. You have to believe that what you're doing is getting good information to the people who need it when they need it. Right? If that's not why you're doing this, go sell Coca-Cola, right? Nothing against Coke, fine product, yada yada yada, that ain't what I do, right? And there's this focus of, you know, we want to get good information into the hands of the people who need it. You got to learn the rules and be creative in the way you implement them. But that's what we all want. I didn't see that in the news, but number one cause of death, misinformation. Wow. All right. Okay. So that's something to think about. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to uh, a lot of people, uh, when it comes to omnichannel, and there was recently a report based on interview with like about 50 people that are omnichannel experts in pharma. And he talked about this, you know, omnichannel and the core element of omnichannel being more content. And so we call that, there, we call it not digital first future, but content first future. Whereas we, something that happened in every other industry where the buyer's journey, in this case, a prescriber's journey, has changed so that most of the education happens without having a sales rep in the room. I sometimes give an example of buying anything else, like a car. It used to be first thing you do is go to a dealership and talk to a salesperson. Now you go online, you check, let's say we want to buy a Mercedes. You look at their website, which is like first party, and it's great and it's educational. And of course, they're going to talk more about their product in a better way. But there is video, there's information, there's everything. You're also going to look at third party. So you're going to do reviews. You may want to check a few, few videos. And then maybe in the last 10 to 20% of your journey, <laughs> you are going to talk to a salesperson at what they call bottom of the funnel activity, and you're going to have much more technical questions. I mean, we see it how patients now go to doctors and ask more technical questions, which can be good or bad, but but we see that, you know, with doctors. So now sales rep is not, you know, the main source of their information about a new product. They are getting that information online, educating. So so content is a paramount to that. And, and I posted on LinkedIn last week, there is no omni-channel without content. That's the core. And now... The same report says that, you know, 62% of pharma executives cite that lack of content or not enough content 
is the major challenge to omnichannel, where 94% of them said that omnichannel is very important. And so there is a gap there. And so I'm thinking of this future from you know 2023 and beyond as how in the world we're going to have you know pharma companies and medical device companies produce way more content to do what other industries have done, lead with content, while it's, you know, and saying content at scale, and then saying, well, there isn't a cost and there is MLR. And on the MLR, it's always, you know, some of the things we discussed, which is, which is better education, which is better use of technology. And sometimes I'm thinking, but MLR is a review. And I have to ask you this question. It's a review process. It's not, sometimes I said once on the stage, it's not a rocket science. <laughs> what I meant by that, sometimes think that we are so unique as an industry, but fin- finance industry is very regulated and, you know, airline industry is very regulated. And every, every month I get, you know, from Charles Schwab and Chase, you know, 20, 30 pages on investing or something. And I'm sure that every word has been reviewed by some sort of an MLR <laughs> or a committee from those industries. So like, how can we that, that be done in scale? Is it also we need more people in MLR? We need more in, uh, integrated. We need just basically hire more people, have better processes. So how can all these other industries do it and produce in finance content at scale nowadays, right? And like we're like, well, we're still like, well, we're stuck. Any thoughts on that? Well, so I, I hear where you're coming from. I think that we as an industry, we're slower to pick up on this because of the risks associated with inappropriate promotion, as we talked about, you know, HHS investigations. You know, we have instances of senior executives at pharmaceutical companies uh, being put in prison. And at root, the issue goes back to ad promo communications that were being made on behalf of the company's products. So, you know, the risks are very real. And I'm not trying to downplay the risks associated with violating SEC regulations or anything else, but just that there, there's a very good reason why uh, pharmaceutical companies are risk averse. Uh, having said that, they are doing it. Not every company is doing it at the same level. Not every company is doing it as well. But, you know, I certainly have been in presentations and, you know, talked to uh, people at the companies who are producing more at scale, who are producing so-called modular content that can be picked up, that can be reviewed in one context, and you develop a set of business rules around how that uh, particular module can be used in other contexts. And then that speeds it through the review and approval process, you know, so that you're able to produce a much higher volume of content. Uh, and in some cases, we're dealing with very, very conservative companies that are extremely risk averse, and yet they're doing it, right? So it, it can be done. I don't think every, you know, I think some of the challenges we've already touched upon you said you you uh, read my book, so you know that I'm a, a big believer in one you know fundamental point with all of these things is they have to understand the technology, right? So you cannot review, you cannot develop content until you understand how that platform, whatever it is, is going to you know alter or implement or show your content. You know, we just recently saw in one of the FDA enforcement actions from the past uh, 14 months or so that, you know, I firmly believe that the people who were reviewing the content thought it was going to look differently than the way it actually appeared when it was a finished product. 
And I think that trips up people quite often, right? So you, you have to really know the nuts and bolts of how does the technology work? What does it look like? How is it going to change things? And make sure that you get that core information delivered. If you are genuinely delivering the right information, you're going to be fine. Got it. And then one of the conversations that we often have, because we license software to pharma companies so, so they can have their own first-party Netflix-like content hubs, we do support other formats, but uh, video is the main format. We live in a visual world. Everyone wants personalized micro-learning short-form video. So what, anything specific that would be your guidance on for pharma marketeers who want to have more videos? Uh, anything in terms of steps and process or how they submit first the scripts or if it's a KOL video slides, anything they could do in order to get something reviewed and approved uh, faster in the context of video format. Yeah, I think this is a this is a classic example of where going back to that core principle of developing the 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 set of guidelines and I'm not talking about a core claims document, right? I'm talking about a set of guidelines for how to develop the videos, you know, rules around how certain sentences must be spoken and, you know, when they must appear and, you know, helping the people who are going to develop that content, you know, get those things in place, and then they can iterate off of it. And those iterations can then, you know, be developed at a much higher level. So that would potentially be done, you know, upfront, even before you're writing the individual scripts, so that the scripts, when they come in, can already be in a place where they can be reviewed very quickly because you've already got that key information in. And then when you move from the script into the actual filming, if all of those, you know, recommendations have been set up in advance, then again, you should have a much smoother review and approval process. You're going to still need to go through a multi-stage process. I don't foresee a world yet where, you know, you're going to be able to simply develop the guidelines and go immediately to finished video. Maybe that's a, a possibility down the line, and I certainly wouldn't want to rule it out uh, if you, you know, spend the time up front to do it, and that would be fantastic. But uh, I think you can easily streamline this process. And again, higher quality content going in means much faster reviews and much higher quality content going out. Yeah, it's great. One of the interesting innovations we've seen when it comes to video editing in-house is that for videos that we do, and like this video that you know we edit, is that there are softwares nowadays that immediately create transcription. And then when you want to edit, you edit it like you edit the Word document or Google document. You delete the words. So and 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 that can be really fast, really quick. And then AI kind of makes a nice transition so that it doesn't look like what they call jump cut. So it doesn't look like there are too many cuts. So that is really, really powerful. I thought of it about MLR when I saw that for the first time. We are now using it. And also, there is even a way to, if let's say there was one sentence missing, let's say clarification on something. So you don't redo the whole thing. Actually, now AI can take that same voice of a speaker so and create that one sentence. It can be inserted into text in the same exact voice intonation, uh, and everything, and you know, not have you know a face of the speaker that maybe there is a slide shown, because there is an environment. So all I'm saying is, this comes incredibly handy for not redoing <laughs> something that has spent so much money, time, and everything. The set, there's, there's think of a studio, this and that. You can actually remove things and maybe add a sentence or two, 
I've heard of situations where, you know, a speaker said on a video, a product-rated video, and and they should they should have said or, and that that added another three weeks of back and forth because it can make a huge difference, right? If we're talking about product, and so things like that, it could be much yeah, absolutely much 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 faster. And um, when it comes to uh, specifically video content, great. So for the very end, we could talk for hours, and we, uh, I, I I have a feeling we'll have another episode very soon. But I want to I like to kind of bring a human side of my guests for this episode. So I have. Five or six rapid fire questions. <laughs> okay. More like to understand more about you. <laughs> so, what is your favorite industry buzzword of 2023, or what do you believe will be the big word of 2023? Uh, so, pharmaceutical industry buzzword? Pharmaceutical, yeah. Okay. So, pharmaceutical industry, I think it's going to be omnichannel for 2023. As a decade, I think we're all in the privacy world, but for this year, I think the adoption of omnichannel is absolutely you know top of mind. And then what's the best book you read in the last 12 months? <laughs> I'm returning to uh, some some work on free will. And so I'm reading some stuff from my old philosophy days about free will. Uh, and I don't know which one I would point to, but that that's the general category. That's what's on my book bed stand right now. All right. That's such an interesting topic. Is there a free will? And then what's your go-to kind of song or type of music when you need some inspiration? My wife has taken over control of my musical tastes. And so she determines the, uh, the soundtrack that we have. And we've got a lot of pop with some occasional, you know, classical. Just the other day, we were uh, pulling up Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue and, you know, jamming out to that, which is just so much fun. So I've got a pretty eclectic musical taste. Beautiful. Great to hear. And then who in the world of pharma would you most like to take for lunch? That's really challenging. I'm torn between people uh, at FDA and some of the uh, key industry leaders and researchers. And so I don't know where to, which side of the equation to come down on because there are so many people doing interesting work. Maybe bring them both to lunch. Yeah, possibly if we can do a group lunch and we can have, you know, a few uh, industry representatives, you know, some of the, the one thing about industry that's fascinating or, well, there are many things, we have this role in society that we are the the development of the covid vaccines was one of the greatest you know advances in human history and the fact that we were able to do that so rapidly i don't think a lot of people appreciate the fact that you know moderna and biontech and all of these companies were out there doing work for a really long time that enabled them to develop these vaccines as rapidly as they did. And so some of the research that's going on in those sorts of arenas with uh, vaccine uh, development and combating antibiotic resistance, those are fascinating developments that, you know, we depend on industry to do, but we need FDA to be a partner in that. Very clear. And what would be one sentence advice that you would give to someone who's just entering the pharma marketing world? That it's worth it, you know, that go, learning the rules, doing all of this stuff, it is challenging and it's not like any other type of marketing out there. As I said before, I got nothing against people who spend their careers, you know, marketing uh, consumer packaged goods or soft drinks or, you know, electronics or whatever. But what we do in the pharmaceutical industry is 
talk to people about the most intimate things in their life, the health of their loved ones, uh, the health of their children, their parents, right? Their spouse, you know, how that is as core to who we are as human beings as anything is. You know, there's a reason people say, if you don't have health, you don't have anything. And if you have good health, you know, you're, you're the wealthiest person in the world. And that's what we do all day long. We try to help people get good information to improve the quality of their lives. Yeah, it's worth it. And then uh, where can people find you online? Yeah, so I'm online uh, at uh, phillycook.com, P-H-I-L-L-Y-C-O-O-K-E.com. And uh, then, of course, uh, my LinkedIn profile. Would love people reached out to connect there. Uh, Offline, I'm going to be at, you know, a bunch of different conferences. And you can always keep up with my speaking engagements from my website and LinkedIn posts and other things. Great. And you mentioned that you have courses also on this topic for farm marketeers on Thinkific, I think the online course platform, right? Phillycook.thinkific.com. Yeah, phillycook.thinkific.com. A link to that is from my website as well. And yeah, if you want the on-demand training, that's available whenever. Yeah, well, we are in your on-demand business, so we understand. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. It's been a pleasure connecting with you and continuing to figure out this maze of pharma and regulatory. We'll stay for a few more minutes after this. And thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Evermed. Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.